and I simply come Longing just to bring Something that's worth That will bless your heart I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself Is not what you have required You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship It's all about you It's all about you, Jesus I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made It's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. King of endless words, no one could express how much you deserve. Though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours, every single breath. I'll bring, I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship All about you All about you, Jesus I'm sorry, Lord, things I've made it. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm coming back, heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord. I've made it all about you. It's all about you. It's all about you. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Yes, Father, we just proclaim it right now. God, it's, it's all about you. We don't want to make it about anything else but you. Your love manifests through Jesus Christ. It's all about you. You want to sing your praise. You want to sing of how good you are because it's all about you. Be magnified. Be glorified. Amen.
give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. For He is good, He is above all things. Love endures forever. Sing praise. Sing praise. Mighty hands with the mighty hands and outstretched arm. Love endures forever for the life that's been reborn. Love endures forever. Sing praise. Sing praise. Sing praise. Sing praise. Sing praise. Yeah. Forever God is faithful. Forever God is strong. Forever God is with us forever. From the rising, from the rising to the setting sun, His love endures forever. By the grace of God, we will carry on. Sing it. His love endures forever. Sing praise. Sing praise. Sing praise. Come on, church, sing it out. Sing praise. Sing praise. Sing praise. Forever God is faithful. Forever God is with us forever. Forever God is faithful. Forever God is faithful. Forever God is strong. Forever God is with us forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. Yes. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. Forever. Let's sing it again. His love endures. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. Forever sing praise, sing praise, sing praise, sing praise, sing praise, yeah. Forever God is faithful, forever God is strong, forever God is with us forever forever you are faithful forever you are faithful forever you are strong forever you are with us forever 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 
Let's give the Lord a clap offering. We thank you, God, for your good. Your good, God. We thank you, Father, so much for the cross. We thank you because, God, the cross is the hope of the world. The cross is the hope for everything in our life. Thank you. Your blood speaks a better word.
What can wash away our sin? What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash us pure as snow? Welcomed as the friends of God. Nothing but the blood, nothing but your blood, King Jesus. In the morning, when I rise, in the morning, when I rise, in the morning, when I rise, sing it, church. Give me Jesus. Sing it again in the morning. In the morning, when I rise, in the morning, when I rise, in the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. When I come to die, 
Oh, and when I come to die, when I come to die, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Give me. Jesus, give me Jesus, you can have all this world, you can have, you can have all this world, one last time, you can have all Father, that's a cry of our heart this afternoon. We need Jesus. More of Jesus. More of Jesus. Father, as you deliver your word through Pastor Ryan, we pray more of Jesus. As our youngsters go into their class, Father, more of Jesus in their life. In our fellowship time after service, more of Jesus. We need you. Thank you again for Jesus. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. joining or visiting for the first time, we want to today. Well, Happy New Year. Uh, just to kind of update you on where we're headed here uh, before we get started by praying, uh, to say this, the last couple of weeks we've been kind of doing standalone sermons, including today, Hebrews 12. We're looking at a, a passage here that hopefully will be encouraging as we start the new year. But then starting on January 19th, we'll be starting a series in the book of First Thessalonians. So if you're wanting to read ahead and get acquainted with that book, I would encourage you to do so. It should be, should be fantastic. There's a lot of encouragement about the future that is coming and how we are to live in light of who Christ is. So, uh, that said, we are in Hebrews 12 today. Let me pray, and then we'll get started. Uh, Father, we are, as always, thankful for your word, thankful that we have the opportunity to study your word together. And as always, we're praying that today what would happen is that your son, Jesus Christ, would be glorified. Father, we're praying that in everything that we do today, that we would exalt his name, that we would glorify you, that we would make much of you, 
The goal today is not to come here and make this about us, but rather to worship you. And we know that ultimately when we worship you, that's when we're most satisfied. And so we're praying today that when we leave, we'd be filled with joy, that we'd be filled with contentment, knowing that you are a great God who satisfies his people. Help us to see that there is a race to be run, and it's a race worth running. Father, we thank you for your word. We're praying that it would speak in powerful ways today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the start of a new year, of course, means lots of different things to lots of different people. For some people, the start of a new year means it's the chance to start a new year with a new slate. For others, the start of a new year is simply nothing more than a passing of time. It was 2013, now it's 2014. For others, New Year's might even mean less. Maybe New Year's for you simply means that you get to sleep in and watch some football or whatever else it may be that you do on New Year's Day. Or for others, of course... It's too bad that didn't happen in a more dramatic moment in the sermon. That would have been much more effective. That's okay. Uh, Apparently, I needed to emphasize this point, that for some, on New Year's, it means the making of New Year's resolutions. Now, as you might imagine, it is not hard to find a list of resolutions on the internet. In fact, it's easy to Google New Year's resolutions and come up with a thousand lists of New Year's resolutions. But of all the lists I found, there was one that got my attention, because it was the only one that I could find that was not just 10 resolutions, it was 50. I have to be honest in saying that I was hoping there'd be a lot of weird ones on this list of 50. I thought by the time they got to 47 and 48, it'd just be strange ones, but there was nothing really too strange on the list. Maybe getting a tattoo or digging a garden, those seem like strange things to resolve to do, but I guess that's pretty normal. But for the most part, the list is exactly what you'd expect. In fact, the first six are exactly what you would predict. Lose weight, get in shape, eat healthier, spend more time with family, save money, eliminate credit card debt, and so on and so forth. But in light of our passage today, it was number 17 that got my attention. Number 17, New Year's resolution, according to one random list on the internet, is to run a marathon. Now, I'll say this. I've never run a marathon before, although at times in my life, I've thought running a marathon would be a great goal. But I'll say this. After I've done research, I'm probably less inclined, now that I know what it takes to run a marathon, than I would have been previously. But at times in my life, I thought, yeah, running a marathon would be a great thing. And I do have great admiration for those who run marathons. I know we have a couple of people in our congregation who run marathons, Nancy LeBoy, Jen Yee. Maybe there's others I'm not even aware of. But I have admiration because I know it takes a tremendous amount of dedication to run a marathon. From what I could tell, most of the research I did this week, most marathon training plans usually take around 18 to 22 weeks of training. I'm sure there's variations to that. But most marathons, usually 18 to 22 weeks. And although, again, plans vary widely, I would say that on the average marathon training plan, you run around four to 500 miles in those 18 to 22 weeks. So to put that in perspective, that's about the distance from here in Terrytown to Cleveland, Ohio. It's quite a ways, 475 miles. So that, if you're planning on training for a marathon, get ready to run to Cleveland. And that's why I said, after I studied more about marathons this week, I thought, you know what, maybe running a marathon isn't such a great idea. I'm not so excited about running to Cleveland. That's a long ways. But that said, I'm definitely much more impressed knowing what it takes to run a marathon. In fact, the more I think about it, the more impressed I am about what it takes to train for a marathon specifically. It takes serious discipline to train for a marathon, which I suppose is one reason why you would need to resolve or make a resolution to run a marathon, because it takes resolve. But listen, even if you never plan on running a marathon, and again, after learning about Cleveland, I'm probably in that camp now. But even if you never plan on running a marathon, or even if you've never run one, I would guess that at some level you can relate to this idea of being disciplined or putting forth great effort to accomplish something that's worthwhile. 
Maybe for you it wasn't a marathon. Maybe it was some sort of academic achievement. Maybe you worked hard for years so that you could get into that school that you wanted to. Or you worked harder for years so that you could get into that grad school you wanted or so you could get that degree that you were working for. Or maybe for you it was related to a job. There's some job that you wanted and you were willing to put in the hard hours so that you could work your way up the ladder. Or maybe it's something else, but I'm guessing that at some level, almost every person in this room can relate to the idea of disciplining yourself and putting forth great effort in order to accomplish something that is worthwhile. But here's my question for you today. Have you ever put forth that level of effort, that level of discipline, that level of concentration towards your relationship with Christ? So I think we can all relate to what it takes to accomplish something great. But the question is, have you ever taken that level of concentration and discipline to your relationship with Christ? I suspect that for a lot of people in this room today, you're kind of floating along in your spiritual walk. Things aren't really going bad, but they're not really going great either. And if you're honest, that's really how your spiritual walk has been much of the time. Maybe when you first came to know Christ, there was some excitement, but over the years, that's kind of waned away. And you just feel like you're kind of floating, things, floating through spiritually. But I wonder if maybe the reason why so many of us are struggling right now in our walk with Christ is because we're approaching it with the wrong mentality. We're approaching our relationship with Christ like it's a walk on the beach rather than a race to be run. You would train much differently for a walk on the beach than for a marathon. The fact is, you wouldn't train for a walk on the beach. Who would, right? But you would train for a marathon. And in Scripture, over and over, over and over, the Christian life is compared to running a race. And so I wonder if maybe the reason why we struggle so much is because we've lost sight of what it takes to follow Christ. It's like running a race. 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Timothy 4, all of them use this analogy of walking after Christ. Walking is maybe not the right word to use there. Running after Christ in a race, right? We run after Christ in a race. And certainly we see that in our passage today. And so the prayer is that as we study Hebrews 12, that when we get done, the prayer is that there would be a desire within you to run the race, to follow after Christ. That as you think about 2014, there would be one consuming passion, and that is to run after Christ. So let's read here, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. Again, just two verses. And by the way, I always feel good for guys like Brian when they get stuck with the passage like this as opposed to the passage about Mephibosheth. I always feel sorry when people have to read Mephibosheth and all these other weird Old Testament names, and then Brian gets two verses in Hebrews. Congratulations, Brian. You deserved it. All right, so Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now here's the great thing about Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Despite the fact that it's only two verses, it is loaded with treasure. And not only does it tell us why, or not only does it encourage us to run the race, but it tells us how to run the race. It gives us several things to say, this is how you should run the race. In other words, this is how you should pursue Christ. It starts by saying this, that we should run the race remembering the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and then it says a few things, and then it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, run the race. 
Now you may have heard me say this before, maybe you've heard it, say, heard it from someone else before, but when you see a therefore in Scripture, the question to always ask is simply this, what is the therefore, therefore? Why is it there? Right? Oftentimes you can think of therefore as something to the effect of in light of this. In other words, we're saying in light of what? Well, in this case, it's pointing us back to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is one of the most precious chapters in all of Scripture. Some would refer to it as the hall of faith. It's this catalog of people of great faith, people like Abraham, Noah, Moses, Joseph, and many others. And it lays out how, by trusting God, they were able to do great things. And so here's the argument of Hebrews 12.1. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since we are surrounded by these heroes of the faith, we too should run the race. That's the argument. And the question is, in what way are we surrounded by this cloud of witnesses? You could think of it two ways. One might be that the cloud of witnesses is looking down on us. They are witnessing us. These heroes of the faith are in heaven seemingly cheering us on. And many have taken this passage to mean that. But I think that there's a better explanation. And I think that the explanation is that we are watching them. We are watching them. Commentator William Lane says this. The emphasis in verse 1 falls on what Christians see in the cloud of witnesses. It falls on what Christians see in the cloud of witnesses rather than on what the cloud of witnesses see in Christians. In other words, the example that we have in Hebrews chapter 11 is meant to inspire us and to encourage us to run the race, to follow Christ, to go after him with everything that we have. One of the reasons why I think that sometimes we're not very excited about pursuing Christ is because in our culture we've lost the picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Oftentimes in this culture, and I'm sure in many other cultures over the years, Following Christ has been watered down and it's been a source of timidity. In other words, Christians are associated with timidity and weakness. And although that's true to some extent, we are weak. But it's also true that in Christ we are strong. We are strong. Look at the way the saints of old, the believers of old, are described in Hebrews chapter 11. I want to just read part of this. The whole chapter is pretty incredible. But let's read verses 32 to 38. Hebrews 11, so just one chapter before. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Listen, there is nothing watered down or nothing timid about the followers of God that are described in Hebrews chapter 11. People are shutting the mouths of lions by the power of God. They are escaping the sword. In some cases, they are being struck down by the sword. In other cases, they are refusing to be released from torture because they believe that there is a better life to come. Others are being sawn in two. And they did it all because they believe the promises of God. That should be inspiring to us. When we oftentimes want to shrink away from our faith and not say anything about Christ, we should think about the believers in Hebrews chapter 11 who are willing to be sawn in two because they believe the promises of God. I was reading a book this week called Risky Gospel. 
And in the, in the book, the author tell, told this story about a girl named Blandina. Now, I can honestly say, I, I don't recall having heard of Blandina before I read this book, but the moment I heard about her and the more I heard about her story, I was captivated by it. Blandina was a young slave girl living in Lyon, France in the second century. She was arrested by the Roman Empire because of her faith in Christ. She wasn't the only one. There were many during this time period who were being arrested because of their faith in Christ. In the Roman Empire, Christians were not treated kindly. This was especially true of Christian slaves, of which Blandina was one. She was a Christian slave. And the thinking was that if you tortured the Christian slaves, they might give up some sort of incriminating evidence about their Christian masters. And so oftentimes the Roman Empire would think of every evil thing they could do to torture slaves so that they would say something awful about their Christian masters. In fact, oftentimes they would torture the slaves until they renounced their faith in Christ. Sometimes they would promise the slaves freedom if only they would make up some charge against their Christian masters. It was common in history for these slaves to make up things, to say that the masters were cannibals or to say that they were involved in incest just so that they could be released. Well, Blandina was a likely candidate to give in and to walk away from her faith. She was frail, she was young, she was weak. In fact, there's some evidence that her companions were concerned that once they started torturing Blandina, that she would quickly give in and she would quickly renounce her faith in Christ. And certainly the Roman Empire did everything they could to torture Blandina. At one point, she was hung on a post and exposed to wild animals But for some reason, the wild animals refused to attack. She was repeatedly tortured, and yet she refused to concede her faith, saying only, I'm a Christian, and I've committed no wrongdoing. At one point, her torturers became so exhausted from torturing her, whatever they were doing, whipping her, or whatever the case was, they became so tired that they had to take a break. And they went and found their leader, and they said, we can't think of anything to do to inflict more pain on Blandina. In the Roman Empire, that's saying something. They'd run out of ideas of ways to make Blandina feel pain. At one point, they attempted to roast her to death. And yet all the while, she continued to yell out encouragement. At one point, there was a 15-year-old boy who was being tortured for her faith. And Blandina, who's likely about the same age, encouraged this boy, stay strong in your faith. Do not give in. And this is happening while she's being roasted to death or attempting to be roasted to death. Eventually, she would be gored to death by a bull. But never once, from what we know, did she weaken in her faith. She believed that the gospel of Jesus Christ was true. And she was willing to endure whatever came her way to defend this truth. A weak, fragile teenage girl. How could this not inspire us to be more courageous for Christ? Oftentimes, we are unwilling to say anything. Oftentimes we shrink away from our faith in ways that we try to avoid it at every cost possible, letting people know that we're a follower of Christ. And yet we look at people like Blandina and we see there must be more. That there must be some more courage that we can muster by the power of God and the Spirit working in us. I want you to know that if things continue to go the way that they are in our culture, that it's going to take courage to follow Jesus Christ. There may come a day In fact, that day may already be here where we have to make the decision if we want to be liked or if we're going to follow Jesus. Those may be the two paths that face us. We can either be liked or we can follow Christ. We may have to make the decision. We can either follow the ways of the world or we can follow the Word of God. In fact, I would say that day is already here. And it's going to take more courage in the days to come. And the question is, will we look at the examples of people who have walked by and we say, we want to live that way. 
In our culture, we throw around the word courage a lot. But oftentimes, we use it to define things that aren't really courage. But what Blandina had, that was courage. To be able to stand up for your faith in Christ, no matter what torture you faced, that is courage. And the point of Hebrews 12.1 is that examples like this should inspire us. They should spur us on in the faith. They should help us to break out of our weakness and out of our timidity. When you think of people in Hebrews 11 like Noah building the ark in faith, or Abraham going to a place that he did not know, or Moses sacrificing the treasures of Egypt to lead the Israelites, or people being sawn in two because of their faith, Hebrews 12 would say that's not just something we should admire, it's something that should inspire us. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us run the race. Let us run the race. Let's not hide in fear because of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, let us stand strong and passionately pursue Christ. We run the race because we are reminded that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. But that's not the only thing Hebrews 12 tells us about how to run the race. It says that we also run the race by throwing off the weight and the sin that so easily entangles. Verse 1. Verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, when we lived in Texas, there wasn't much of a need for our kids to have snow gear. It might snow a couple times a year, but it would melt usually by the next day, so it wasn't even worth buying the snow gear to go out and play in the snow. But now that we live in New York, our kids are beginning to, uh, to, I guess you could say this, they're beginning to understand the joy of playing in snow. They love snow. I have to say, it's particularly fun to watch your kids go out and play in the snow, especially when they have all this snow gear on. There's something about snow gear that just makes them move in really odd ways, especially our younger children. Dawson, when he puts on snow gear, he is unbelievable to watch. He, he kind of walks like this, like he's some sort of Frankenstein in a snowsuit. And when he falls over, if he falls in the right place, he cannot get up. He can't move. His brothers have to come and help him. There's this one place on a hill that he always seems to fall, and he'll just lay there until his brothers come and help him up. He just can't move in that snowsuit. Listen, if I was trying to tell my sons to run a race, if I knew that they were involved in a race wherever it was, that we were headed to the track and they were running a 100-meter dash, I would not put on their snow gear in order to help them run faster. There's a reason why you will never see anyone wearing a parka and snow pants running the 100-meter dash at the Olympics. It will never happen because it's a weight. It's a hindrance. It holds us back. And yet here's the thing. Some of us, spiritually speaking, we are running after Christ with our snow gear on. It doesn't make any sense. There is weight. There is sin that is clinging around us and it's keeping us from pursuing Christ. So here's the question I would ask you today. What is it, as we start this year, and as we kind of evaluate where our life is headed, what is it that's holding you back from being more passionate in your pursuit of Christ? What is the weight that is holding you back? What is the sin that is entangling you? Listen, we all have weights. We all have sins that hold us back. The question is, what is holding you back? What is holding you back? Maybe in some cases, it's something good that you have made into an ultimate thing. I think there's a reason why there's two categories here. There's a category of weight and there's a category of sin. Because I think that sometimes, really what holds us back is not necessarily straight, plain, sinful things, but rather it's good things that we make ultimate things. Let me give you an example. Maybe for some in here, the thing that's holding you back from being more passionate about your relationship with Christ is your job. Maybe it's your job. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with the job. In fact, a job is a good thing. And you can actually make a scripture argument that a job is a good thing, right? So no one's saying a job is bad. But maybe for some, a job has become the ultimate thing. It's a good thing that's become ultimate. Maybe for you, your desire for success in the workplace has started to crowd out the time that you need for your relationship with Christ. Maybe because of the demands of your job, you're unable to devote the time you need to your relationship with Christ. You just don't have time for the Word. You don't have time for prayer. You don't have time to invest in your family spiritually or for other important things because you're too busy. A good thing has become an ultimate thing. Or maybe for others, it's your family. Now again, no one's arguing that a family is bad. In fact, in Scripture, you can definitely make the argument that a family is of great value. It's of great worth. But perhaps for some in here, family has become the ultimate. It's a good thing that has become more important than the ultimate thing, which is Christ. Perhaps the pursuit of good things for your family has started to eclipse the pursuit of Christ in your life. And while it's certainly good intentioned, you've unintentionally neglected the most important thing, which is helping your family to see that Christ is the great treasure to pursue good things, things like sports or music or whatever the case may be, academics, other things that maybe are good, but you've made them ultimate. And so in that way, something good has become the ultimate. Or maybe for others, it's entertainment. Again, there's nothing wrong with entertainment, but maybe for some, the pursuit of entertainment has eclipsed your pursuit of Christ. When I worked with students, occasionally uh, I would just encourage them to try to memorize Scripture. Not because you have to memorize Scripture to be a Christian, but because it's good to have the Word of God in your heart. It's amazing to me how many times I would tell students, hey, I think it would be a good idea for you to just to try to memorize Scripture and see how it goes. And they would say to me, yeah, I just can't remember things. Which, you know, I get that. Some people have better memories than others. But those same students would often be the ones that we were on the long bus ride to Colorado. They were the ones who could quote every single line of a movie. Literally, they could quote almost the entire movie, the whole eight-hour trip on the way to Colorado. They would just movie quote after movie quote after movie quote. Listen, the issue wasn't memory, right? The issue was what they valued. The issue is what they were passionate about. Now, I want to be as clear as I can be here. I'm not saying that we should get rid of our jobs or get rid of our families or stop being entertained. That would be absurd, ridiculous, and in some cases, just plain sinful. But what I am saying is we need to ask ourselves this question. Are there good things in our life that we have made ultimate things? Are there good things in our life that are distracting us from the best thing, which is Christ? Are there weights, if you will, that are holding you back from running the race? If so, what steps might you need to take this year to make those good things that you've made ultimate back in their proper place and make Christ the ultimate thing? Again, we're not saying these things are bad. We're just saying what ways might you need to set them aside so that you can run more passionately for Christ? Now that said, sometimes what's holding us back from Christ are not good things that have become ultimate. Sometimes what's holding us back from Christ is just plain old sin. That much is clear in Hebrews 12. It says that we need to remove the sin that entangles. I don't know anyone who would run a race and say, you know what would help me run faster is rope around my legs. Just tie some rope around my legs and let's see how it goes. No one would do that, right? And yet again, this is how we oftentimes live our spiritual life. We are entangled by sin and it's keeping us from pursuing Christ. Now in the most general sense, some of you here need to repent of your sins and trust Christ. The way that you need to become untangled for sin is to recognize that you are a sinner and you need to place your faith in Christ. Listen, it's really easy to live out what appears to be the Christian life. To go to church, to be a good person, and not really to be a Christian at all. In other words, you can have the appearance of running the race 
without really being in the race. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ, regardless of what outward appearance you may give, that you've never placed your faith in Christ, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, my encouragement to you would be, first of all, to get in the race. And by get in the race, I simply mean trust in Christ for salvation. Recognize your sin, repent of your sin, and trust Christ. So in some cases, to untangle of sin means that you untangle of your sin in an ultimate sense by trusting Christ. But that said, I do think that in Hebrews 12, this passage is being specifically directed to believers. It's telling believers to remove the sin that that tangles us up. And listen, that's kind of the elephant in the room, right? It's the type of thing we don't like to talk about because it gets pretty personal pretty fast. But for some of you, the reason why you're struggling in your Christian life is because there is sin that has entangled you. I don't know what it is, but you do. You know what the sin is that's entangling you right now. Maybe for some in this room, in fact, given the statistics, I know that this is true. For some in this room, the sin that's entangled is sexual immorality. Maybe it's lust, maybe it's pornography, but it's killing your family, it's killing your soul. Maybe for others it's pride, maybe it's anger, maybe it's a gossiping tongue, maybe it's selfishness, maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's something else. But whatever it is, that sin is keeping you back from pursuing Christ the way that you know you should. More importantly, the the way that you would want to if you knew how great Christ was. John Piper once said it this way, this book, he said in reference to the Bible, this book will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from this book. The same is true of an intimate relationship with Christ. An intimate relationship with Christ will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from an intimate relationship with Christ. Listen, I know we don't like to talk about it because it's kind of uncomfortable. But for some, there's, for some in here today, there's a pattern of sin that has started to grow into your life like a vine. And it needs to be cut out. And what that means for you, I'm not entirely for sure. Maybe it means that later on when we're in our fellowship time, you find a brother or sister in Christ and you just ask for help. Or maybe it means when you get home, you confess something to your spouse or to your kids or to your parents. But maybe you need to just bring that sin to light so that you can become untangled. But listen, I want to be careful here because we're, we're running a risk. And that risk is here that we can try to motivate by guilt when I think that there's another motivation that's offered here. And so I want to skip ahead in the passage a little bit. We're going to come back to verse 1. But before we go any further, I want to make sure that we have a proper motivation for attacking this. I want to make sure that we're understanding this passage correctly. Sometimes when we talk about living out the Christian life, and especially when we talk about getting rid of sin, the way that we are motivating is motivating by guilt. I don't want guilt to be the motivation today. Because I think that's dangerous in the end. Years ago, there was a program in this country called True Love Waits. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this program. The basic gist of the program, it was done by Christians, and it was an encouragement for especially young people, to, it was an encouragement to avoid sex before marriage. It was an encouragement to be sexually abstaining before marriage, which is a good thing. The movement encouraged young people to sign this pledge saying that they would be sexually pure before marriage. But I read articles in recent years, so this was the 1990s this was happening. I read articles in recent years that this movement was by and large ineffective. In fact, the vast majority of those who signed the pledge cards ended up being sexually impure before marriage. Now, maybe you're not familiar with this program, but in the part of the country where I grew up, it was a big deal. But the question is, why didn't it work? I mean, this is a good goal, right? To encourage Christians to be sexually pure before marriage. But why didn't it work? Well, I suppose there's lots of reasons. One of them is that signing a pledge doesn't get rid of your sinful nature, right? And I suspect that many who signed that pledge weren't actually Christians. 
But I would also argue that for many, the motivation being offered in that program was not the proper motivation. It was a motivation of guilt. It was Hebrews 12.1 language. Get rid of the sin without the Hebrews 12.2 motivation. Hebrews 12.2 is the key to this passage. So in other words, what was happening with this program is that people were saying, stop sinning, stop having sex, live out the Christian life, and do it because we tell you to, rather than offering up the motivation that Hebrews 12 offers. And that's the problem. Oftentimes when we talk about Hebrews 12.1 issues, we often stop at Hebrews 12.1, and we don't talk about Hebrews 12.2. In other words, when we start talking about sin, we just start saying things like, try harder, don't sin, and we forget that verse 2 is the key to this entire passage. So let's read it here. Hebrews 12.2. Again, I think this is the linchpin. This is what makes everything make sense here. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, this is how you run the race, by looking to Jesus. It's not by trying harder. It's not by becoming more disciplined. It's not by forming accountability groups. It's not by being guilted into new ways of of trying to fight sin. No, the way that you run the race properly is by looking to Jesus. By fixing your eyes on Jesus. This is the key to the entire passage. If we miss this, we've missed the entire point of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. To run the race, to live for Christ, you must fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Why fix your eyes on Jesus? Well, number one, He is the author and perfecter of our faith. The fact is that no matter how hard you try, you will never be able to achieve perfection. You will never be able to get rid of all of the sin that entangles, all of the weight that holds us back. You will never be able to run the race completely properly. And that is why we look to Jesus, because He always ran the race exactly right. There was never a sin that hindered Him. There was never weight that held Him back. He was always running the race correctly. Listen, even if your New Year's resolution was to be more devote, or devoted to your faith than Billy Graham or whatever other token religious figure you want to put in there. And even if you were able to accomplish that, that would still not be the way by which you are counted to be right with God. The only way that you can be right with God is through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Period. And that's why we look to Jesus, because He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who ran the race correctly. And He is the one who motivates us. The reason why we want to live out the Christian faith, the reason why we want to be more like Blandina, the reason why we want to be more like the people of Hebrews 11 is because we see that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that's what motivates us. We see how much He cared about us and how much He loved us and we say that's who we want to live for. So the reason we fix our eyes on Jesus is because He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Our righteousness comes from Him. But I think there's another reason why we fix our eyes on Jesus. Because Jesus is the greater reward. In much the same way that Jesus was willing to go to the cross because of the joy that was set before Him. In the same way, the reason why we set aside the, hin- the weight that hinders and the sin that entangles is because there's something better. It's Jesus. That's why I said we're on dangerous ground earlier. Because there's more than one way to motivate people to live out the Christian faith. One way is to motivate by guilt. Right? We can say things like this. Don't prioritize your job over Christ. It'll make you a bad Christian. Right? We can just guilt people into it. Or we can say, don't spend too much time with entertainment. You're wasting your time. Or stop looking at bad things on the internet. It's bad for you. Listen, that's one way to motivate. Right? But in the end, it only leads to resentment and frustration because it doesn't work. 
But there's another way to motivate, and that is by pointing to Christ, by saying, fix your eyes on Jesus. So for example, here's why you shouldn't prioritize your job or your family over Christ. Because you will be missing out on the joy of what it means to be sold out for Christ. That's why you shouldn't do it. Because there's something better. The reason why you should be sexually pure is because the joy of following Christ is always better than the temporary happiness of sin. That's a much different motivation than just saying, stop doing it, it's bad. No, what we're saying is there's something better. And Jesus is the something better. He's the something better. Now that said, I, I, know, I know in a group this size that there have to be some who are skeptical of that. That you don't really believe that Jesus is better. That deep down in your heart of hearts, you really do believe that money or power or control or sex seem better than Jesus. If that's how you're feeling today, I don't, I don't know how to argue with you other than to say, this is what the Bible teaches. And number two, to say, I've tasted it and I've seen it. For 18 years, I lived for the things of this world. For the last 15, I've lived for Christ. And all I can say is, Jesus is better. As one beggar who found food, all I can do is say to you, another beggar, if you want satisfaction, there's only one place I know to find it. It's Jesus. He's better. That's why we fix our eyes on Jesus, because He is the reward. Now that said, we need to be honest here in saying this, that running the race and following Christ, it's not always easy. There will be times when other things seem more appealing. There will be times where you feel like you're running out of energy, and you're lacking motivation. Which brings us to the last thing about how to run the race. We have to run it with endurance. Again, back to verse 1. Verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In my high school track team, we had a great long-distance runner. His name was Joel Senefield. He ran the one mile and the two mile, and he was fantastic. But what made him great was not that he ran the first lap the fastest. In fact, there was never a time where he was running the two mile, which is eight laps around the track, where after three laps, we all stood up and gave him a standing ovation. We said, oh, Joel, you're amazing. You're leading after lap three. We never did that. No, the reason why we admired his running and the reason why we would stand up and clap for him is because he finished the race. Right? It was his perseverance. It's the fact that when everyone else faded away, he kept going stronger. That's what made him a great long-distance runner. Listen, the Christian life is an endurance race. It doesn't mean we pace ourselves, but it does mean that there will be times where we need steadfastness. There will be times where we need perseverance. There will be times where it's going to require effort. The goal in Christianity is not just to start well, it's to finish well. There will be times when running the race when following Christ will leave you weary. And you'll feel like following Christ is really difficult. Just as I would imagine that at some point, if you're running a marathon, I would guess that at some point along the road, you, have, you probably ask yourself the question, why am I doing this? There might be times in your Christian life where you ask yourself, why am I following Christ? And you'll wish that God would give you more answers. And you'll feel frustrated because it feels like trials keep coming. You'll be just plain tired of doing the right thing. But the book of Hebrews encourages us Keep running the race. Look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross and suffered the shame. Keep running the race. Listen, I don't know what your other resolutions are in 2014, but let us resolve as a church that in 2014, we are going to run the race. We are going to follow Christ. And that we will run the race, that we will follow Christ with the same diligence that we might use to train for a marathon. 
All of that effort that you've used in the past to accomplish something great in a worldly sense, let's direct that effort towards Christ in 2014. You know what? Let's think even bigger than that. Let's make this our goal. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul says this. At the end of his life, this is the last book that he wrote, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, Paul says this. I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Let's make that our goal. That at the end of our life, we would be able to say, I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. My prayer for every person in this room is that someday we would be able to say that. And that, friends, is a goal that's worth living for, whether it's 2014, 2015, 2016, or whatever other year. I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great passage in Hebrews 12. We're praying that ultimately we would be motivated by what Jesus did that we wouldn't be motivated by guilt necessarily, but rather that we would be motivated by the fact that Jesus died on the cross, that he set aside everything on our behalf. Help us to be people who run the race, who look to the cloud of witnesses, who throw aside every weight and sin that entangles, and we fix our eyes on Jesus, running the race with endurance. Father, we love you. We're praying all these things in your son's name. Amen. So we're going to do something. Philippians 1, 12 through verse 18a by saying, I rejoice. And now he starts this passage by again saying, I rejoice. Now this should not surprise us. There is a reason why we entitled this series, Philippians, Joy in All Circumstances. Because throughout the book of Philippians, over and over and over again, we see this theme of joy. Paul is consistently and constantly talking about his joy. There's probably a word for us in that. For some of you, when you think of Christianity, you probably think of duty, and you think of obligation, and you think of following rules, and you think of old, stuffy religion. But if that's the Christianity that you have in your mind, chances are you're not actually thinking of what it means to truly follow Christ. Because to follow Christ is not a duty or an obligation. At times it may feel like that, but ultimately it is a joy. So it's no surprise that Paul would open this passage by saying, I rejoice. And what he's rejoicing in here is that he is rejoicing that all of this will turn out for his deliverance. All right, look carefully again at verse 18. At verse 18, he says this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It's my, as it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So in 18, or 19, he says, for that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. The question is, what deliverance is he talking about? Some would say that he's talking about the fact that he's going to be delivered from prison, that he's going to be released. And certainly later on in the passage, it would seem that Paul expects that he will be released. But I don't think that's what he means here. The context of the passage wouldn't make sense because he goes on to say, whether I live or I die. I don't think he's talking about being released here. Instead, when he's talking about being delivered, what he's saying is, I am confident that all of this that is happening will lead to my deliverance in the sense that he will get his way safely to heaven. In 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul says it this way, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed 
and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's what he's talking about here as well, I think. He's saying, I'm confident that all of this is part of my character development so that God will bring me safely into the kingdom of heaven. And what's interesting is he says that there's two things that will contribute to that. Number one is the prayers of other saints, and number two is the help of the Holy Spirit. That's a beautiful picture for us of the balance between human action and divine sovereignty. We are, in some ways, completely dependent upon the prayers of others. And at the same time, we are completely, in every way, dependent upon the Holy Spirit. So let us remember that as we make our way towards verse 21, which is a key passage this morning, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Let us keep in mind that if we're going to live that way, we will need the prayers of others and ultimately we will need the help of the Holy Spirit. To have the mindset of to live as Christ and to die as gain is not something that you do on your own. It's not something that you just wake up and, you're, and you will yourself to do. It's something that you will require prayers for, and it's something that the Holy Spirit will have to help with. What Paul is saying is that by prayers, by the Holy Spirit, he is confident that all of this will turn out for his deliverance. Now the question is, what is this? This could mean his imprisonment. He could be saying, my imprisonment will turn out for my deliverance. In other words, this is part of my character development so that I will be sanctified and I will be safely taken to the kingdom of heaven. God will bring me to sanctification through this. Or he could be referring to the fact that some people are out to get him. Or it could be a combination of both. But the point is this, that Paul is confident that all of this will turn out for his deliverance. And he's also confident that by the grace of God, whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he's released or whether he is executed, Christ will be honored in his body. And that is the context that leads up to verse 21. So verse 21, again, he says this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now this is a beautiful verse. This is an amazing verse of scripture. But again, let us not just be in awe of what it says. Let us try to figure out what it means. Again, our goal is simply this. What does this mean, and do we believe it? Let's just tackle those one at a time. What does this phrase mean? What does it mean when we say to live is Christ and to die is gain? I think the verses that come after verse 21 help us to understand. Verse 22 says this. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. All right, so let's tackle this phrase one at a time. There's two parts to it. To live is Christ and to die is gain. So what does this first part mean? To live is Christ. First of all, we have to admit this is kind of strange language, right? He doesn't say to live is about Christ. Or he doesn't say to live is to live for Christ. Instead, he says to live is Christ. Now, I suppose in a general sense, we could say this. To live is Christ means that Christ is our all-encompassing passion. That he is supreme in our life. That everything that happens in our life is filtered through the lens of living for Jesus Christ. On the one hand, I think we could say that that is what he means when he says to live is Christ. But as we dig into this passage, I think it's obvious that Paul means something more than that. Yes, of course it means that Christ is our all-encompassing passion. Of course it means that Christ is our greatest priority. But it also means that we are living for other people. 
Consider what Paul says. He says, if he is going to live, it will mean fruitful labor for Christ. Verse 22. If he's going to live, it will mean that he will be able to help the Philippians. Verse 24. If he's going to live, it means that he will be able to help the Philippians progress in their faith and find joy in their faith. Verse 25. If he's going to live, it means that everything will be done for the glory of Christ. Verse 26. So yes, to live as Christ means that Christ is our greatest passion. But also, given what Paul says here, to live as Christ also means that we are living for others. Which maybe is not what we would expect. Right? When he says to live as Christ, certainly we usually would think of an individual pursuit of Christ. When Paul says to live as Christ, we would think, okay, that means that I should be passionate about Christ. And I think that's true. But what it also means, I think, given what we read here, is that we should be passionate about Christ being advanced in the lives of others. Now, we're not necessarily just talking about evangelism here. The idea of non-believers hearing about Jesus and deciding to live for Christ, although that might be part of it. Well, what specifically we're talking about is that Christ would be advanced in the lives of believers, that their faith would be progressed, that they would find more joy. That's the context here. Or in other words, we might say it this way, discipleship. To live as Christ, for Paul, meant that he was passionate about Christ, but it also meant that he was passionate about discipleship. As Paul wrestles through this hypothetical dilemma of of whether he would rather live or die, and for the record, this is a hypothetical dilemma. No one's offering him the choice. No one's saying, hey, Paul, do you want to live or die? It's up to you. That's not what's happening here. He's just wrestling through this hypothetically. But interestingly enough, as he wrestles about whether he should stay, the one thing that makes him want to stay is that he's convinced that if he stays, he can help the Philippians in their faith. In fact, by the end of the passage, it's obvious that Paul expects that he will stay. And historical evidence would suggest that he probably was released and that he did visit the Philippians at least once more. But what's interesting for us to note this morning is that for Paul, when he says to live as Christ, he's not just talking about Christ being our greatest passion. He's talking about living for the advancement of Christ in others' lives. So that's the first half of the verse, to live as Christ. We'll come back to that in a second. It means that Christ is our greatest passion, also means that we're living to advance the cause of Christ and others. But the second half of the verse is also there, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And I suspect that the second half is not quite as difficult to understand. Verse 23, Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Listen, I don't think it's hard to understand what Paul says or what he means when he says to die is gain. It's just more difficult to believe it. And that's where we start to realize that this passage becomes more difficult. When we start to ask this question, do we believe this? Do we believe this? We know what it means to live as Christ. We know what it means to die as gain. But do we really believe that that's true? Do we actually believe that to live is Christ? Do we actually believe that to die would be gain? Do you believe that to live is Christ? Is living for Christ your passion and your joy? Are you striving to have fruitful labor for Christ? Is your goal to help others in their faith? Are you helping others to progress in their faith and find their joy in their faith? Is the glory of, your, is the glory of Christ your motivation? Can you honestly say to live is Christ? It's interesting that over the years, we've probably made that phrase to mean something different. 
When people think of living for Christ or living is Christ, oftentimes what they mean is that they go to church on Sunday, and if someone asks them the question, are you a Christian, they say yes. And if Christ fits in with the rest of their life, great. And if not, no big deal. We can just include him next Sunday. But that type of living, that type of setting aside Christianity and only having it be on the fringe of our lives is an idea that is foreign to the New Testament. Consider Paul here. As he's deciding whether he would live or die, again, just hypothetically, the reason he wants to live is so that he can help the Philippians in their faith. Now think just for a minute. If someone were to ask you, why do you want to live? What would be your response to that question? I'm guessing if you're like most people, you'd probably say something like this. If you're single, you might say, well, I just want to get married first, and then after that I can die. Or if you're married, you might say, well, I just want to have kids first, and then I can die. Or I just want to see my kids graduate from high school, then it's fine if I'm taken. Or I just want to see my kids get married. Or I just want to have grandkids. Or if you want nothing to do with kids, I just want to travel and see the world, right? That's how most of us answer that question. Why do you want to live? Nothing wrong with answering that way. But how many of us would say, if someone asked us, why do you want to live? Well, the reason why I want to keep living is I'm convinced that if I stay here, I can help others progress in their faith. I'm convinced that if I could just live a little bit longer, more people would have joy in Christ because of me. How many people would answer that way? And yet that's what Paul says here. Now, of course, we recognize that eventually Paul did die, and the gospel still advanced, right, as evidenced by the fact that we are gathered here today some 2,000 years later. So we're not saying that God is dependent upon us. We're not saying that in order for the gospel to advance in the lives of others, he needs us. We're just saying that by the grace of God, he allows us to be a part of this, that we get to be a part of seeing the gospel progress in the lives of others. Now, As we talk about this, some of you might be thinking, hold on just a minute. We're talking about Paul here, right? Paul is the apostle. Of course Paul was passionate about seeing the gospel advance in the lives of others because he is Paul, right? Some of you are thinking, he's the apostle. Like, I know know where you're going with this, and I know what you're going to say, but this is Paul. And I'm with you, right? Like, I understand that Paul was unique, and I understand that he had a unique role in the church. I get all of that. But before we let ourselves off the hook and before we say, I don't know if discipleship is really my thing, consider consider the last words that Jesus says in Matthew 28. You're probably familiar with it, the Great Commission. He says this, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the end of the age. As one of my friends said, This is not the great suggestion. This is a commandment. It's the great commission. This is not Paul's role. This is not someone else's role. If we are a Christian, this is our role, to make disciples. And by the way, it's also our role that we should figure out a way to take that to the nations, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But it starts here. This is not someone else's role. This is our role help others progress in their faith and find their joy in Christ. That's our role. We should certainly be passionate about Christ in our own lives. And listen, one of the best ways you can be a good disciple of others is to be passionate about Christ yourself. So absolutely, when we say to live as Christ, that should mean that the thing we are most passionate about is Christ. 
But it also means this, that we are passionate about Christ being progressed or the faith of Christ being progressed in others. We want other people to progress in their faith. 30-some years ago, in fact, I'm, I'm not sure about the timeline here. I've just done my best to piece this story together. But 30-some years ago, there was a pig farmer in Iowa. And this pig farmer in Iowa met a man named Jim Luby, who was a freshman at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. And this pig farmer shared Jesus Christ with Jim Luby. And when Jim decided that he was going to live for Christ, this pig farmer came along, and he taught Jim how to read his Bible and how to pray. In short, he taught him, or he helped him to progress in his faith and find his joy in Christ. You might say it this way. He lived out Philippians 1. Years later, Jim Luby would meet a man named Mark Walter. Mark Walter, same thing would happen. Jim would share with Mark the good news of Jesus Christ, and then he helped him to read his Bible and to pray. In other words, he helped him to progress in his faith and find his joy in Christ. Years later, I would be sitting in the computer lab at the University of Northern Iowa, and I would be sitting next to Mark Walter. I met him, and, and maybe if you're figuring, if you're the type of person who likes to see patterns, you might know where I'm going with this, right? Mark shared Christ with me. He taught me how to read my Bible, how to share my faith. He helped me to progress in my faith and find my joy in Christ. In other words, he lived out Philippians 1. And over the years, by the grace of God, I've had the privilege of being able to do that same thing in the lives of others. Listen, I, I don't know that pig farmer in Iowa. Never met him. I don't even know his name. But you know what? I'm really glad that he took the Great Commission seriously. I'm really glad that he was committed to this idea that to live is Christ. I'm really glad that not only did he share the gospel with Jim Luby, he took the time to disciple him. And I'm really glad that over the years, others followed his lead. And I hope we'll follow his lead also. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I hope that as we talk about that, this idea of living for Christ, I hope this is intriguing to you. And I hope that as we talk about this idea that there is joy to be found in living for Jesus Christ, that you would recognize that in your heart there is a desire for joy. And I hope that you'd recognize that you are a sinner and that the only hope for joy you have is found in Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins. And I hope this morning that as you hear that message, you would have a desire to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. And then you know what I, ho what I hope would happen next? Is that we as a church would come alongside you and we would say, how can we help you progress in your faith? How can we help you to find joy in Christ? If you're here this morning and you're struggling in your faith, let me encourage you, find someone who can help you. Maybe it's someone in your care group. Maybe it's someone that was on the softball team or that you play basketball with. Maybe it's someone that you see in a position of leadership. If you're a student, maybe it's your parent. Or maybe it's a youth group leader. Listen, it's not a sign of weakness to say that you need help in your Christian faith. It's a sign of wisdom that you recognize you can't do this alone. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ, the question is, is your mindset to live as Christ? Is Christ your passion? Are you fighting for the joy and progress of the faith in others? Here's the question. Are you connected enough with other people to be able to help them to progress in their faith? We've already talked about this a lot in the book of Philippians. But there's an idea in the book of Philippians that we're seeing over and over, and that's that we need gospel-centered relationships. And so the question is, are you close enough to other people in this church that you know how you can help them to progress in their faith? That you know how you can help them to find joy in their faith?
If we're going to say to live is Christ, I think that that's a necessity. If you're a parent, are you helping your children to find their joy in Christ? Or by your actions, are you teaching them that joy is found in something else? Falsely, by the way. If you're married, are you helping your spouse to find joy? Are you helping your spouse to progress in the faith? When we say that to live is Christ, we do mean that Christ is our passion. But we also mean that we are committed to the idea of advancing Christ in the lives of others. Particularly those who are of the household of faith. Particularly those who are other believers. Do you believe that to live is Christ? Are you living that way? Of course, the other part of the verse is a little bit challenging too, right? To live is Christ and to die is gain. Here's where we probably need to be honest. Most of us out loud in a group this size would probably say, oh yeah, I agree, to die is gain. But secretly, I'm not sure how many of us actually believe that's true. And even if we believe it intellectually, I would guess that even fewer of us actually live like we believe that's true. Do you believe that to die is gain? Do you believe that it would be far better for you to die and to be with Christ? Several years ago, we took our two oldest sons, Noah and Eli, to an amusement park in Amarillo, Texas. At the time, we only had two kids, Noah, who I think was either three or four at the time, and Eli, who was one or two. And this is the first time that they'd ever been to an amusement park. So um, I, I don't even know if you can call this amusement park in Amarillo a true amusement park, but it was like a step up from a carnival, all right? So there's carnival, amusement park in Amarillo, and then like six flags. This was somewhere in between, all right? And so we took our kids. This was the first time to the amusement park. And Noah was at that prime age where he was starting to love all the rides, right? So he goes there, and he loves the kiddie cars and the kiddie boats and the kiddie helicopters. He's just loving it. But there's this one ride that all the other kids seem to love that Noah's a little bit nervous about. It's this froggy ride, all right? So I recognize that I've just said kiddie and froggy twice in a sermon. That's got to be some record, right? So there's this froggy ride, and the way the froggy ride works is that you get strapped in, and then the froggy hops up in the air, 15 feet or whatever, and then it just keeps bouncing like this, right? And so we're telling Noah, hey, Noah, we're, we're trying to walk that balance, right, as parents. Like, number one, we want him to overcome his fears, but at the same time, we don't want to make him do something that he hates. And so he's, he's loving these cars, these boats, but we can tell that all the other kids are loving the froggy. So we're like, Noah, you should try the frog, right? Try the froggy. And so eventually, he goes and he gets on the frog, and, you know, we're as nervous parents. This is our firstborn, right? So this is our third kid. We're like, he'll be fine. Let's just go watch the other kids, right? But we're watching our first kid. And we're like, what's his reaction? And we can tell he's having fun. He's, he's smiling as he does it. And, of course, as he gets off, being that he's a, his, our first kid, we're, like, overbearing. We're like, tell us about it. What happened? You know, we're in his face. Like, what happened on the froggy? And I kid you not, this is the first thing that comes out of his mind. He said, did I just go to heaven? Now, in his mind, he'd assume that just because he'd gone higher in the sky, he must have gone to heaven. So, um... As a pastor, of course, I'm thinking, well, I need to theologically correct this pretty quickly. And so I just said, you know, here's the deal, Noah. Like, heaven is more about being with God than it is about knowing exactly where heaven is. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay, sure, sure. And so um, you know, he's three or four. So I, the next ride we go to is this huge sky lift. It's like the ski lift chairs that go around the park, 30 feet in the air, right? And so we get halfway across. It's just me and Noah. And, uh, again, we've just had this theological talk about heaven. And he turns to me and says, oh, I get it. This is heaven. This is so much higher. Now, um, I think we can all agree, that's, that's actually some pretty bad theology about heaven, right? But the thing I was thinking about this week is that I'm not so sure 
that our theology about heaven is all that much more advanced. For a really long time, I thought that heaven would be me sitting in the clouds playing a harp with an eternal church service going on. And listen, here's the deal. I would guess that your view of heaven is kind of maybe closely related to that. And let's be honest, an hour of church can be really tiring sometimes. So the idea of having an eternity of church services, listen, who likes to play a harp? I don't know, maybe some of you do. But I'm not really excited about playing a harp. And so this idea of dying is gain, I think if we're honest, most of us would say, I don't know. It's even reflected in the way we talk about heaven. One of my seminary professors pointed out that we talk about heaven this way. We call it the afterlife, right? As if this is life and what comes afterwards, that's just the afterlife, right? Like this is life. A better way to think about it might be that this is pre-life. If you're in Christ, real life is still to come. The problem is we don't have an accurate picture of heaven. So listen, we don't have time this morning for me to lay out everything that the Bible says about heaven. But I do want to kind of whet your appetite. I want you to think biblically about heaven. I think that oftentimes we think wrongly about heaven because we base it maybe what we've seen in children's books or even adult books that are out there where people talk about this experience that they've had in heaven rather than just reading the Bible and seeing what it says about heaven. So let's just turn to Revelation 21 for just a minute. Again, we're, we're not having an exhaustive study of what heaven is, but I just want to kind of get your appetite going. I want you to think biblically. I want your biblical imagination to start thinking, what will heaven actually be like? And then I suppose, or I hope, that as we do that, your love or your desire to go to heaven will increase. All right, so Revelation 21. We're just going to read the first seven verses. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Listen, I don't know exactly what heaven will be like, but I do know this. It will not be boring. And I feel fairly confident we will not play harps while we're there. So whatever the case is, I can promise you this. It will not be boring. And the best part of it is, we will be with That's what verse 23 in Philippians 1 talks about, right? It would be better by far for me to part and to be with Christ. If you have a picture of heaven in your mind, and by picture I don't necessarily mean an image, I just mean an idea of heaven in your mind. And that picture does not include the fact that you are with God. Rest assured, you do not have an accurate picture of heaven. Because the best part of heaven, undoubtedly, is that we will be with him. No wonder Paul says, to die is gain. 
No wonder, and I'm not sure who said this, although I've heard it quoted before. I think maybe Charles Spurgeon said, are you having a hard day? Cheer up. Today could be your last day on earth. Or he says it another way. The best thing that could happen to a Christian is that they would die. Now listen, we need to make a careful distinction here. When we say that to die is gain, or when we say that the best thing that could happen to a Christian is that they would die, we are talking specifically to Christians. For those who are not believing in Christ, dying will not be gain. It will not be their best day. It will be their worst. Because all that will be left is a fearful expectation of judgment. But God in his grace sent his son Jesus Christ that if you would believe, dying really will be gain. Do you believe that? Do you believe that to die is gain? Are you living like that is true? Are you playing it safe? Doing everything you can to make this life as comfortable as possible? Are you living with one eye on eternity, recognizing that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Listen, over the years, there have been lots of famous slogans and taglines, but I hope that the one that is running through our mind on a regular basis is not tricks are for kids. Instead, I hope that the phrase that runs through our minds on a daily basis is this one, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In fact, it's my hope that not only is that running through our minds, but even more radically that we are living like we believe it's true. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That is a phrase worth remembering. That is a phrase worth living for. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we really would believe this to be true. That to live is Christ, that we would invest our lives in investing in others. That we would give ourselves for the sake of the gospel and the lives of others. We're praying that we really would believe that to live is Christ. And we also pray that we would believe that to die is gain. After all, when we die, if we're in Christ, we get to be with you. And that is the best part. Father, we are praying that in all things, in every area of our life, we really would believe this message to be true, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.